Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. This week, we talk with Zach Williamson and Ariel Gabizon about the protocol Plonk. But before we start, we want to share a message from this week's sponsor, New Cipher. Here it goes. In 1778, during the American Revolutionary War, Colonel John McIntosh and the 127 Continental soldiers repudiated the British's demand of surrender with, as to surrendering the fort, Receive this laconic reply. Come and take it. Now, fast forward to 2020. Stakers, developers, and node operators the world over cast off the shackles of Silicon Valley's great merchants of infrastructure with the cry, come and stake it. In case you missed it, this is the announcement for New Cipher's incentivized testnet coming to CoinList which has the motto, come and stake it. If you're interested, be sure to pre-register now. Launch date, structure, and price details will be shared shortly. All winners will need to complete KYC AML. Please go to newcipher.com to sign up. So thank you again, NewCypher, for sponsoring our show and for letting me try out my hardcore history impression for this ad spot. So now here's our episode on Plunk. All right, so today we're sitting with Ariel Gabizon, previously from Zcash and Protocol Labs, and now at Aztec, and Zach Williamson, who's also at Aztec. Um, we've had you both on the show before, and we've done actually full episodes where we did get a chance to dig into your backgrounds. We talked about uh, all the work that Ariel's been doing, and we talked about Aztec. So yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. This episode, we will be covering a lot of ground, and there's a, there's a number of podcasts that you might want to listen to before listening to this one. Um, for example, you should probably listen to the episode on Sonics with Sean Bow, definitely the episode with Ariel, the episode with Zach, and also one of the ZK's, like in the ZK Study Club, we actually have videos, um, Justin Drake does a video series on polynomial commitments. And that might be also worth checking out because we talk about a lot of those concepts in this episode. Cool. So let's get started. So um, last time we talked to you, Ariel, you worked at uh, Protocol Labs. And uh, now you're working with Aztec, I believe. Uh, how did that move happen? And, and uh, how's, what's, what's been going on in your guys' lives the past uh, couple of months? Yeah, so I'm still going to advise uh, Filecoin till uh, launch. Uh, I think it's a, it's a great project and, and I want to see it uh, succeed. I guess I, I was just thinking of uh, death and, uh, you know, life being short. And uh, <laughs> I, I felt that uh, Plonk was uh, sort of where my, my natural focus was. So I wanted to use the, the few years I have uh, with, you know, still having a clear mind to to get it like really get it off the ground um i think it it has it has really good potential like i know i don't want to say it's like sort of the final thing but 
there's a lot of simplification there. Uh, and, and I think it has potential to, to really take off. It also, it also has this slightly abrasive one syllable name, like a lot of good Linux programs, uh, like Git and grep. So I'm hoping Plonk will be like a similar Linux command line thing people use with an abrasive one syllable name. Okay. So first of all, that's extremely, uh, I don't even know where to go with that. It's like it's very it's very life stuff, Ariel. This is like life very or existential. death. <laughs> uh, I wanna. I actually wanna ask Zach. So last time Zach we had you on, we talked about Aztec, sort of the core Aztec business. How does Plonk fit into this? Like, was Plonk so? And this is actually, I, I'm not clear on this. Was Plonk an Aztec initiative, or was this like a separate research project that the two of you did? How did Plonk happen? Well, Plonk was, from, from my perspective, Plonk was always kind of a reaction to um, some of the limitations and shortfalls of, of our original Aztec protocol. We tailored that protocol to be, to be suited to some of the weaknesses of Ethereum, so that it was, for example, extremely efficient to verify proofs. But it, it, it meant that it was not a, as general purpose as we would have liked. Um, and so I started kind of trying to research how to um, use existing techniques out there to create like a, a slightly more universal way of doing things. That kind of segued into uh, meeting Ariel at a, at a conference and kind of um, we started talking together about, about some common ideas and um, eventually wound up on what was what then turned into Plonk. Um, I think it's, it's not it's not fair to say that I kind of I had Plonk in mind when we started developing it. I had a kind of an outcome in mind that I really wanted uh, like a, an efficient universal type of proving system. Which conference was it? Do you remember? It it was uh, binary district uh, zero knowledge uh, workshop in London. We knew each other um, beforehand, but kind of we don't we don't need kind of talked a couple of times. Oh. I think um, more. Specifically, uh, Zach asked me a bunch of questions when we met at this event, some of which I, I didn't know the answer to. But he asked me one easy question. Uh, one reason I knew the answer was because I, I worked with Ellie on, on Starks before they were called Starks. And there was this very common technique there of... Um, I'll get a bit technical of, of using a, a generator of a multiplicative subgroup to sort of move between, uh, neighboring values. Uh, so this, this is a very common technique in, in a lot of the Stark, uh, slash PCP literature. And it was sort of just this small missing piece in an idea of Zach and also in getting the permutation you know, speaking a bit imprecisely in, in getting the permutation argument in, in Sonic to be uh, simpler uh, and, and, and more more efficient. Mm. But what is Plonk? Like, what is it exactly? Like, maybe, I don't know if you can summarize it in, like, a sentence or two for our listeners, but... Do you want to try that? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, have, I have this non-technical analogy that puts Plonk and some recent work, Sonic, Marlin relative in a certain place relative to the previous snarks and starks so uh suppose th there's been a murder and you're a you're a suspect and you're taken into interrogation and if it's too grim you can think of the suspect as, as a prover and the interrogator 
as the verifier and, and forget the murder part. <laughs> uh, but if you like it, you can think about it. So suppose you're, you're taken into interrogation. The stark version of the interrogation is the investigator just gives you a blank piece of paper and says, you know, write what you did last night in total free form. And then after you finish, the investigator can, can ask you anything they want. Like the thing you wrote in the third line contradicts the thing. He can ask you anything. So that's sort of Starks in a sense. And then these sort of classic pairing-based snarks uh, that, that Zcash uh, uses is instead of a, a blank piece of paper, the investigator gives you sort of a survey form where you can't just write whatever you want. You can't write, well, I was actually abducted by aliens yesterday, so it couldn't have been me. He just gives you sort of a like, yesterday night, I was either at the suspect's house or at my house or at this bar. Like a so multiple just, choice question. A multiple choice thing. Yeah. But then also the investigator, after you fill this form, cannot ask you whatever he wants, he's also limited to, to certain like questions like, oh, what you filled in question two, you know, I think it contradicts what you filled in question five. He can't ask you free form questions. And in a way, this new wave of what we can call polynomial commitment scheme based schemes, it's in a, in a way the best of both worlds uh, in terms from the verifier or investigator's point of view that the suspect needs to fill the form and can't write what he what he wants but the investigator can then ask any question interesting uh, oh cool this is so, a, this is a great sort of mapping ariel thanks for doing that the only thing it's missing is the zero knowledge part Right. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> to it's, totally, like it's totally knowledge. missing that. Yeah. I, I, I guess what happens, how the zero knowledge maps is usually these systems, you adding the zero knowledge part is sort of easy by somehow randomizing the, the answers. But just to explain how it maps technically. So, so right. In all these systems, it, it always starts with you have some statement you want to prove and you do what's called arithmetization. So we move from a statement of the form, this Zcash transaction is valid, and I know the private keys of the input notes, to a statement of the form, I know some polynomials that satisfy some identity. Okay, now the question is what you do from here. And sort of the stark approach was, let the prover write whatever they want. And then we will check that what he wrote is really a low degree polynomial and check at some random point that this polynomial or polynomials satisfy the, the required equation. Sort of what happened in these pairing based snarks like Pinocchio and Grot 16 is we sort of used homomorphic in encryption, or it's not exactly homomorphic encryption, but let's call it that, to force the, the prover to like, or the suspect to, to write certain things in a yeah. certain format. But then what sort of we lost from this is that the only sort of practical homomorphic encryption like thing we know is these elliptic curve pairings. And what that translates to is that then the verifier can only ask 
questions that correspond to to what people call R1CS. Ah, so R1CS is this form that you describe in a way. It's these like this predefined clear like answers that have to fall into a certain format. So after the prover writes the answers, sort of the verifier can ask consistency questions about the answers and R1CS is a type of verifier question. Now, the sort of the general verifier question is uh, a general like polynomial, like is this polynomial zero on your points? And an R1CS question is the polynomial has to be of the form this sum times this sum equals this third sum. So for starters, it's degree two, because it's a sum times a sum beyond that, but also it's a special form of a, of a degree two thing. And the reason the verifier was limited to this form of question was because pairings are sort of a very limited form of homomorphic encryption. And then now this third approach that started with Sonic is sort of saying, we'll use the sort of pairing limited homomorphic encryption, not for the whole thing. We'll, we'll just use it for committing to a polynomial and then opening it. Okay, I realized I forgot to say something. So part of the thing that's going on in the snarks not the Starks, is that the verifier is checking the equation not an, on a random point of his choosing, but on a secret point that's encoded in the parameters in the common reference string. What, what started from Sonic is we only use the pairing to commit to a polynomial and open it, but then we can open it at a... After we've opened it, we can check not only these R1CS constraints, but a general verifier equation. Hmm. So that's that third that third example where the prover has to prove within a format. Yeah. Still within this sort of snarks pairing-based paradigm. But then the verifier can use – is the verifier actually using like a Stark-like technique to check that is more freeform, or is it a different thing? The verifiers is now checking some arbitrary polynomial equation. Yeah, which is what the Stark verifiers would do because, yeah, they were not limited to this R1CS format. Is, is there also a connection to bulletproofs, though, and bulletproof techniques in some of these new uh, polynomial commitment schemes? Or is that something else? So... The way that bulletproofs kind of can be used to encode arithmetic circuits is quite different to what we're doing. So I don't think there are any direct parallels between bulletproofs and Planck, other than kind of like what people iterated on with like bulletproofs came came around several years ago. People iterated on it and produced different kinds of circuit structures and polynomial commitment schemes, and eventually that iteration uh, led to, amongst other things, Planck. So whilst it's not a uh, direct, there's nothing, there's nothing like direct that direct directly copied across some bulletproofs. Um, I, I guess I guess kind of spiritually it's a sort of iteration on some some concepts that bulletproof. It's a great, described. great second cousin or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, well one thing I 
I should say, so I think what happened a little in these last two years, which relates to bulletproofs. So this work on polynomial commitment schemes came out, this work of Kate's of Arucha Goldberg, and that's been extremely influential. So all these recent works, Sonic, Marlin, Plonk, are heavily based on that. But a byproduct of that is that it made people realize what was not sort of explicitly maybe in people's heads, that what's going on in the Starks, you can think of it also as a, that one ingredient in the proving system is a polynomial commitment scheme. And then sort of when people looked at this as a separate component, they thought, okay, so what else can I plug in as this component? So in the context of, of uh, bulletproof, sort of a, Zach maybe can correct me, but a, a core there, there you're a part of that work, is a polynomial commitment scheme whose efficiency is sort of in the middle between start, the Stark-based one and the, the one used in, in Planck, uh, but doesn't require a trusted uh, setup, but is not quantum resistant. And then also this, this recent work, uh, this supersonic work asked, um, what other sort of polynomial commitment schemes can we get without a trusted setup? In, in that, that sort of that asking that question and looking at groups of unknown order was the basis for this, uh, supersonic work. Maybe it was a tangent from the original question, but, uh, we should mention that uh, the, the work of Matter Labs was maybe the first to sort of explicitly look at Starks as, or the sort of low degree testing component of Starks as a polynomial commitment sc- scheme uh, w- without trusted setup. I wanted to ask, actually, as you talk through all of these different things being developed in the history, um, where does Planck fit into that story? Like, was it, is it something that's been worked on for a really long time or like an idea floating around? Is it a, an iteration on something? As you mentioned, there, there was Sonics and then Supersonics and then there's, you know, Planck's and now immediately something else building on Planck's. It, it, the whole like past six months in the zero knowledge space has been very confusing for me because there's so many protocols <laughs> and so many protocols building on other protocols. And the names are, are sometimes <laughs> sort of similar. Yeah. Supersonics is an interesting one because I, in, in conversation with Ben and actually the presentation he did at the summit, he made it very clear that like supersonics could also be super plonk or super marlin. It's like it's the other side of the equ- of the equation, so even though it sounds like Sonics Plus, it's actually not dealing with the same part of the problem. Yeah. At least that's what he explained. So, it as. how how does Planck fit into this uh, world? Is it an iteration on something, or is it a, a new innovation? I guess that no, no, nothing is ever new, but <laughs> you know what I mean. We started working on Planck about May last year, so and and we'd. F- basically published the paper in three months. So kind of the, the, the time between like fomenting the idea and publishing it was, was rather short and it was a rather fast turnaround. Obviously nothing exists, exists in a vacuum and Plunk builds on a lot of techniques that, that, that were already in use and kind of assembles a lot of them in a different way and provides something a little bit new to the mix. So I think the idea of creating a permutation argument using multiplicative subgroups wasn't something that had been done before. But the reason why that's useful is because of techniques developed for Sonic, developed by 
uh, Jens Groth and I believe a few others, and in turn, like the idea of using a succinct problem and a commitment scheme to kind of evaluate an arithmetic circuit that had also been around for for a while and had been developed out of the commitment schemes by by Kate and, and and his colleagues. So it was a melting pot of a lot of different ideas. Yeah. Um, maybe applied in a slightly different way to create something something unique. Yeah. And that that sounds like how most you know new papers get written. It's not like some of these other things that are literally just like, oh, this paper was published and we saw how we could use this other polynomial with the same construction, and now we have a third thing. So, so I'd like to maybe uh, cast this a little in in terminology that people uh, have been using. So sort of what's been formalized both in the Marlin paper and the, in the supersonic paper is that these recent proving systems, I guess that started with sonic, but really you can look at all the proof systems from the early PCPs and Starks like this. They can be thought of as having two ingredients. One is what's called the polynomial IOP, as it's called in supersonic or the algebraic holographic proof, as it's called in the Marlin paper. We define something similar in Planck, just called a polynomial protocol. So that's one in- ingredient. And the other ingredient, this is sort of, that's sort of the high level protocol ingredient. And the other more low level ingredient is the polynomial commitment scheme. So where I would fit it in is Basically, what Sonic did is let's take the most efficient polynomial commitment scheme, the the Kate et al. one, and plug it into the IOP, an IOP that is a polynomial IOP that is similar to the Bulletproof's work uh, in in the paper prior to Bulletproof's, whose name I forgot. Was it Bottle? I think that's the one. Yeah, it was Boodle. Boodle, yeah. Boodle and a bunch of people. Boodle, Cheruli a bunch of, of, of people, and, and, and then Bulletproofs was an optimization of that. So Sonic, so again, this works, the, the works of Bulletproofs and the prior work of Boodle, you can think of that as it's a certain polynomial IOP with a polynomial commitment scheme that has no trusted setup based on discrete log. And in a sense, what Sonic did is let's take a similar a polynomial IOP, but use this more efficient KZG polynomial commitment scheme to get sort of constant size proof. Uh, th- they had to do a lot of tricks to, to make it work. So Planck is using the same polynomial commitment scheme as Sonic, but heavily optimizing the polynomial IOP part. Is this where like the supersonic would actually be doing working more on the polynomial commitment side? Exactly. So, okay. so supersonic is taking the Planck polynomial IOP and replacing the KZG polynomial commitment scheme by the one they invented. Got it. And uh, the reason it's called supersonic and not super Planck is because supersonic sounds much better. <laughs> and uh, I think at the time they, they wrote the paper, Planck was not out yet, so they were using the sonic uh, IOP. And uh, then towards the, their publication, they saw that they could shave off some, some kilobytes if they moved to the Planck IOP. Cool. Oh, that's so illuminating, I have to say. 
And I think it's, I, it, this is very, for our listeners, I mean, this is, there is a lot of background, I think, that would be very helpful. Um, there's the video series that, like, Justin's doing on polynomial commitments, which I think would be a really helpful thing to check out. Um, is if this is interesting because it goes into some of the things you're just describing, but with slides, um, a lot of the talks from the summit. And actually, after this, if we, if we can maybe have a chat about some other links that we can share with people to help them get inside this. Should we get into talking about the properties of Planck? Maybe I, I feel like uh, we're at a time where we kind of know a little bit what it is, um, but putting in a high level of view of like. What are the the proving times? What are the proof sizes? What are the performance properties? We've already touched a little bit on, like, does it have a trusted setup or not? How does that work? Uh, but maybe we can run through these normal, you know, criteria that people look at when they look at zero-knowledge proofs. Yeah, happy, very happy to do that. So it's always very difficult to do a direct apples-to-apples comparison, Um but we do have some numbers for these for 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 their, for their basics. For example, um, for Planck, the proof sizes are roughly uh, five hundred twelve bytes. Um, if you comp- kind of compress your elliptic curve points, um, which is kind of what other proving systems do when they represent their proof sizes, are they constant size or or what's what's the complexity? So. To, to be a massive pedant, I guess it's probably logarithmic size. Basically, the, the security of your parameters of your elliptic curve changes, uh, affects the proof size. But other than that, it's constant. So right. that 512 byte number was for the kind of the Barreto Nairig parent friendly curve that Ethereum natively supports. Uh, it gets a bit bigger, like 768 bytes, I believe, if you use the BLS 12381 curve. Um, but that size does not really increase with the complexity of your circuit. Yeah. Um, the verified times, well, I guess it really depends on the verification algorithm and how quickly that's implemented. Um, our implementation does about 1.3 milliseconds to verify a proof. Um, What's the comparison there? Like, what what was the previous benchmark? Very good question. So it's, it's always a little bit hard to, to compare because these are all done with different software implementations and sometimes with different hardware. But I believe, like, the kind of the Growth 16... Um, and similar type proving systems like GM seventeen are within the, the same the same the same range, like between like two to ten milliseconds. Planck is generally slightly faster because it for two reasons: one, it only it requires fewer pairings uh, to get by the pairings, and um, the actual the, the the form of the pairings that we require are more primitive because like um, a lot of the kind of the the, the inputs into the pairings are effectively. Um, uh, constant. They don't change on your set depending on your circuit, so you can do a lot of pre-computations to speed things up. Mm. And what's the complexity of the of the prover? Very good question, because uh, that's kind of, in my opinion, that's kind of the that's where the bottleneck is for all these proving systems. Once you have a like a, a, a somewhat constant verify runtime and, and proof size, you know, once you get below like a, a proof size below two kilobytes, it's kind of it's small, it's small, it's small enough, it's small enough, and making yeah. it any smaller is nice, but not really critical. And the verify runtimes also for these for these kind of polylogarithmic systems they're all pretty they're all pretty efficient. For prover times though, um, that's the bottleneck. And so we released some benchmarks recently that that kind of did a, as, as much of a head-to-head comparison as we could, where we where we kind of we re, we benchmarked Plonk prover times versus Gold sixteen prover times. 
it's highly dependent on circuit structure. Um, so again, it's, it's why it's difficult to do an apples to apples comparison. But uh, when it comes to say MIMC hashes, our printing system is roughly two and a half times faster than Groth 16, which we were quite we were quite happy with because we we, we have very comp- good reasons to think that we can replicate that performance advantage more generally for a much wider range of circuit types as the year progresses. Cool. So if somebody wants to find out a little bit more about these metrics, where do they actually look at it? So we are, our Plonk Prover library, Verify library is all open source um, under our Aztec organization GitHub um, profile. The repository is called, okay, working title, Beresenberg, uh, but I think we need to change it because the name is a bit... What's the reference? I don't get it. What's what's the reference? Okay, so the reference is a few months ago. I'm maybe maybe in a fit of, of foolishness. I decided to start naming some of our software libraries after various confectionaries, um, and so <laughs> Brettenberg originally was an elliptic curve library for the Brettenberg uh, curve um, that Ethereum supports, and so I figured uh, it was a cross between Brettenberg and Battenberg. Wow. But, it's, this yeah. is a Zach yeah. joke, isn't it? Mm, uh, yeah, I'm gonna not not even worth the not even worth the laugh track from your oh, yeah, uh, from your sound deck. <laughs> <laughs> that one actually fit. I didn't even mean to do that. Wow. I hit the wrong button and you hit the right button anyway. <laughs> it's gonna become like a sitcom, right? Yeah. Like zero knowledge diet we just leave that in? That would be so weird for everybody. <laughs> this one sound is the only thing in the whole show. <laughs> 100, 110 episodes, there's one, one. sound bite. <laughs> All right. So, okay, where do we go from here? Ah, so um, there were a few, kind of in looking back at some of the... Um, videos and papers and and things that I could find on on Plonk. There were a few concepts that seem to be introduced. I mean, I, I don't think they're introduced for the first time ever, but maybe introduced for the first time in this context. There's some ideas like the Lagrange bases. You mentioned already the Cate commitment scheme, and I realize that that's used in a lot of different constructions. Um, but maybe it would be a little bit helpful to first talk a little bit about that and maybe redefine these things for our listeners because yeah we we mention them but it's not always clear like why they're special so my my kind of i came to this from the perspective of a software engineer so um i might mangle a few terms and conventions so please interject if i'm if i'm butchering things but so a lagrange base is effectively it's a different way of, of encode we use it as a different way of encoding a polynomial so when, uh, when it comes to, say, something like Sonic, the way that they encoded information within the polynomials was that witness values. So if you have a vector of values, then they would create a polynomial where each vector element was a coefficient. You know, so if you wanted a vector that stored 1, 5, and 10, you would do 1 plus 5x plus 10x squared. Um, and what we do instead is we take we use the Grange basis to encode vectors as polynomials. Effectively, we find a multiplicative subgroup. And so, for example, um, in these giant prime fields we're working with, um, we can use uh, roots of unity. So if we, if we wanted to encode a vector of four values, we would find four roots of unity. Um, and obviously, because we're working with prime fields, the big integers that are modulus and prime, uh, unlike integers, um, what would normally be a complex number is just an, has an actual value, you can find four numbers 
in this in a prime field in this prime field where if you exponentially more to the power of four you'll get one therefore they're all four of unity um, and so what we do is we create we create a polynomial where if you evaluate this polynomial at each of the four roots of unity um, the result of the polynomial will be equal to each one of your vector elements effectively your polynomial is an interpolation polynomial where your um, where kind of um, when your when your x coordinate is uh, one of these elements of a multiplicative subgroup, your y coordinate is going to be one of your vector elements, and then you find the interpolating polynomial that connects all the dots. Yeah, I mean, maybe I can I can try to p- p- paraphrase. So the standard way to represent a polynomial is by what we call the coefficients. Like you'll write the polynomial is five times x plus three times x squared plus two times x cubed, and Sometimes, so you can think of these monomials, these powers, 1x, x squared, x cubed, they're the basis with which you're representing the, the polynomial. And sometimes it's convenient, like for example in Planck, to represent your polynomial in terms of its values, not its coefficients. And that's what Lagrange basis allows you to do. So what exactly a Lagrange basis is, it's suppose you have some set of n points in your field. So the Lagrange basis for this set of points is like a set of n polynomials that the ith one is one on the ith point out of these n and zero on all the rest. The point is now, if you write your polynomial, is instead of a sum of these powers, x, x squared, x cubed, you write it as a sum of the Lagrange basis polynomials, you're in a sense representing the polynomial by its values, because the sort of the coefficient of the i Lagrange polynomial will just be the value um, of the polynomial on the, on the i point. Right, because if you'll try to evaluate it on the ith point and you have this sum, then everything will will become zero except this ith Lagrange one, because the others are zero on the ith point. Mm. So what the value you will get is just the coefficient of this that you put on this ith Lagrange uh, polynomial. Cool. So this is a this is like a technique. Where does it come from? It's very heavily used when designing programs uh, for Starks. And uh, so one reason it's, it's very useful is, so I was talking about just a general set of points and then doing a Lagrange basis for them. But oh, usually what people do, they don't look at a general set of points. They look at what's called a multiplicative subgroup. And what that means, it's just a, a set of points that are powers of the first point. So the set of points will be g, g squared, g cubed, g to the fourth, uh, uh, up to g to the n, which will be, so you'll pick a g such that it's sort of what's called an n fruit of, of unity. So g to the n will just be one. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. So one thing that's very convenient in these sets of points is it allows you to sort of access a neighbor of a point very easily because we can think of the, like 
for example, g cubed as the, the next point after g squared. So suppose you're, you want, you're at g cubed, uh, g squared and you want to get to g cubed, you just multiply, uh, by g. And generally, wherever you are, you, you can get to the next point by just multiplying by, uh, g. Mm-hmm. Um, so this seems maybe a little, uh, trivial. Uh, so one reason it's, it's good is sort of in the context of these proving systems, it's good to have things that fulfill the functions you need and are extremely low degree. And what's good about this neighbor function is that it's just degree one, right? It's the function that goes from X and maps it to X times G, where G is just a, a fixed thing. And, and you could say, why, why do we care about a neighbor of a point? Well, one, just I'll give the example of the, right, the Fibonacci sequence, I think that Starkware uses a lot. Right there, it's like this, you, you want to check, you have a bunch of values and you want to check that always, uh, the third, any value is the sum of the preceding two. So, uh, that's an example of where these sort of neighbor functions are because I, I sort of need a way, a way to say in math, in low degree polynomials, look at my value compared to like the next one or the preceding one. Mm. And then these multiplicative subgroups, this, this notion of the next point, it just corresponds to just multiplying by G or preceding point will just correspond to divide by G. So. Um, yeah, so, so this sort of thing has been, uh, been, been used a lot. Another small technical thing that is use, useful in multiplicative subgroups is a lot of times you end up needing, even the verifier needs to compute this polynomial that is zero on all the points of the multiplicative subgroup is zero on G, G squared uh, up to G to the N. Uh, so in general, this is going to be some degree n polynomial, which will take like n operations to compute. But you have also this very convenient property, uh, that we use in Planck and, uh, many proving systems, PCPs used it, that this polynomial will just, that vanishes on the subgroup will just have this very sparse form x to the n minus one. So that's something that uh, is very important in PCP literature and in, in Starks that you're looking for things that although they have high degree, they have a very sparse representation. Like here, it's just two mon- monomials, x to the n minus one. So a, a verifier can really quickly compute them, even though that their degree is much higher than what the verifier runtime should be. So now this is this is cool because we now understand one of the main and the, as far as I understand Lagrange bases using that technique is one of the big differentiators in Planck, right? This is the thing. I mean, you just sort of mentioned this is a thing that changes Planck from the Sonics construction. What else changes? What else has changed in Planck? It's mostly to do with how you structure your circuits, like what the arithmetization of the circuit is. Um, one of the things that's been quite consistent with in, with the universal snarks 
has been uh, a desire to kind of replicate um, rank one constraint systems because uh, the current, like the non-universal state of the art uses rank one constraint systems for the reasons Ariel mentioned. Um, and there's a, a large corpus of work that constructs circuits at Alma CS form. And so there's been this desire to kind of replicate that in the, uni in the universal setting. The thing that was just quite apparent to us early on was basically staring at this plug paper and trying to figure out how to make it fast, efficient, was that actually rank one constraint systems are absolutely terrible way of representing a Planck circuit. Um, oh. it's, it's extremely inefficient and there, is, and there are much more efficient ways of representing your circuit structure that kind of take advantage of uh, some of the unique properties that Planck has. Specifically, one of them is that you can evaluate like, a large number of different arithmetic expressions that are operating over the same state, which, which might sound a bit abstract, but maybe one way to kind of give an example of that is in snark circuits, um, so imagine you have your, your, your circuits constructed of addition and multiplication gates. So you have kind of uh, two wires feeding into each gate and one wire feeding out and um, the, the output wire can then f uh, be fed into like multiple in input wires. Um, there's a very common requirement that some of the a subset of all of these wires in your circuit need to be either one or zero. They're Boolean wires. Um, and Typically, this requires uh, basically one extra constraint in your circuit, one extra gate, uh, for every wire that you want to constrain to be a bool. However, in Planck, you can add another arithmetic expression into the, into your, into the Planck circuit structure, so that effectively every gate can be either an addition gate or a multiplication gate, and optionally also a Boolean constraint gate. So you can just decide which, like, what subset of your wires are going to be bools and kind of get that property for free um, without adding any extra prover overheads. And you can then you, you can also you can take this to quite an extreme degree, um, which is why we managed to at the end of last year um, get benchmarks which um, evaluated MIMC hashes over twice as fast as Goth 16. Uh, and this is because you can you can add this uh, ha like a lot of custom structure into your gates. So instead of a gate being an addition gate or multiplication gate, it can be a well it can be a MIMC hash round gate or it can be a Pedersen hash around gate um, or, 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 or uh, in, you, can, you can kind of um, uh, something that we, we, we realized relatively early on is that this, this, custom, this kind of custom gate structure um, allows you to make hyper efficient um, proofs for uh, like very common uh, circuit types um, and it does require completely abandoning R1 CS as a way of representing your circuits but uh, so that's so that that's just one one mm. I guess one area where where Plonk is diverging from from other proving systems. Does this is this any way related to Turbo Plonk, which I've heard about through the grapevine? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So I, I, I called it that in a, in, a, in a talk. I believe I gave it at, the, at your at your conference in California, and for want of a better name, that's still what we're calling it. But it's yeah, Turbo Plonk. Yeah, it's it's, it's basically the formal formalizing um, this custom gate structure. Um, and define, basically creating a few, uh, a set of custom, of these custom gates that are like, highly desirable for common circuit types and kind of packaging them up into a single proving system. Hmm. Um, is this, what is it, what state is Turbo Plonk at though? It sounds like this is like you're working on it. You're, it's mid, or does it have documentation? Does it exist somewhere? So uh, we're, we're writing a, a Git book uh, about it that uh, we hope at least some sections to make public soon. Cool. Uh, an interesting thing we, we've noticed uh, very recently is that 
it's actually even you don't need to think of it as a circuit um, anymore. Like the way right now I'm thinking about these TurboPlonk programs, uh, and this is maybe also somewhat inspired by my sort of stark work with Ellie many years ago, that you have like a program with some state. So the state has some width. So say if the width is three, then the state is like three field elements. Uh, and then your program, the program is defined by some polynomials and the polynomials are checking that some relation holds that the state transition is correct, that the certain relation holds between the values in the I throw and the values in the I plus one throw. So you can think of program like this as being sort of a program without memory, that they're just like three registers and the, the state is, is, needs to proceed according to certain rules. Uh, but where the power of Plong comes in is an, in, in a sense gives you memory. So now you have the, the prover will show, Hey, I know like a valid s sequence of states for this program. Uh, but now what, what the, the Plong permutation argument uh, gives you is that you can, you can also in a sense have memory in the program. You can say for, for instance, the second cell in the fourth row should be the same as the 15th cell in the ninth row. Mm -hmm. So you can make arbitrary demands like that. And that you can think of it as it, it gives the program sort of a memory axis. Uh, I do want to sidetrack a bit and, and give credit. So Planck is really heavily based on something called the Bayer-Grot permutation argument. I, I would say Planck works well because we found a very concise version of that permutation argument using multiplicative subgroups, and we sort of stripped out everything else we, we didn't re really need. So I, I think, yeah, I think these, these programs could, with sort of this memory, could, could be a, a, a good way to design uh, snarks. Hmm. This is a circuit-free model that you just are describing so, here. So yeah, so circuits are a special case of this program of these programs, where even you could say a, a even almost degenerate case of these programs, where you're only checking the program typically checks things between this row and the next, and in sort of the circuit case, you're only checking things inside a row. Like the row values will be the input, out, left input, right input, and output of the gate. And you'll have this sort of degenerate transition that only checks consistency inside a row. But of course, you will heavily use this sort of memory thing for the wiring constraints of the circuit. So if, for example, the, the second gate, the output of that goes into the seventh gate, then this will translate to sort of using the the memory cons constraints to to check that something on the the second row is equal to the to the seventh row. Mm. So these transition constraints that the RL was describing they they're incredibly powerful um, and they allow you to represent 
um, circuits with far fewer constraints than, say, something like the Rangwa constraint or the basic Planck gates that we had in the, the paper last year. Um, and so that massively opens up what's practical to build with these structures, which has then allowed us to massively expand the horizons of what we want to ac- accomplish with this at Aztec and what we're planning on building. And this is all culminating in uh, what we are, as a working title, calling uh, Dark Contracts. Ooh, this is really good that you mentioned this, because that was something we definitely wanted to talk about in this episode was like, how does all of this relate back to Aztec? Because now Ariel's working at Aztec with you. And we knew from our previous episode roughly what Aztec's goals were. But yeah, what's the connection then? Well, the connection is we were using Aztec and the protocol, which we're about to launch on mainnet uh, this, this month, uh, enables private value transfers. Of, like You can create private tokens and trade them in a, in a confidential way. So the, the values are, are, are encrypted, but the identities are not. Uh, once that protocols have been developed, we were looking for something much more uh, general purpose to, to take to take Aztec to the next level. Specifically, what we would very much like are privacy-preserving smart contracts. Um, so a world where not only is the identity of a smart contract um, sender uh, hidden, not only is the data that they're manipulating and updating uh, encrypted and not viewable by anybody, but also the smart contract code that they're executing is also hidden, and the act of calling one of these smart contracts is also hidden. Um, and despite sure. basically having this kind of giant black box where you can't see anything, um, still use a public blockchain and a public blockchain's consensus mechanism to enforce the correct execution of these dark contracts. So I can basically make a statement to you where I can say, I'm not going to tell you who I am. I'm not going to tell you what dark contract I'm calling, and I'm not going to tell you about any of the state variables that have changed, but I can prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever the hell I was doing, I followed the rules. I effectively, I followed the, 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 the protocol, like the, the, the logic and semantics of the smart contract program, whatever that may be. So this is super interesting because like Zexy, they had this concept of data of privacy and then function privacy. Mm. And what it sounds like is that like in their case, this function privacy, so the the actual functioning, the purpose of the transaction is also made private. Um, in their case, it's built into the blockchain, the Zexy hmm. blockchain concept. But in your case, you're acting on top of an existing chain, and it sounds like you're trying to bring this function privacy into a public chain, which I don't understand how it works, but it's very cool sounding. <laughs> That's exactly what we're trying to do. Yes, um, bring bring cool. Zexy's function privacy with a few other added features on top to public blockchains, uh, starting like specifically Ethereum. Um, and yeah, it's it's quite an ambitious project. Um, uh, something which is going to be it's not it's not what, currently what we're, we're currently implementing using Plunk because it's going to be a, a twelve month long um, project. Um, but it's that's what we're building towards. So I want to say thank you so much to both of you for coming on and helping us to map out this space to better understand Plonk. There's so much that I've actually learned over the last hour that I think is going to be helpful for me to better understand the new kind of paradigms, new constructions that come out after this. So I want to say thank you. But before we sign off, I actually wanted to ask you what is exciting like what are you excited about right now what new things coming out are you kind of like whoa this is new this is neat 
Well, I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure to be on, uh, so, th so thank you for that. Um, what are we excited about? Well, obviously, um, we're, I mean, I'm biased to the hill, so I'm not going to talk about the Plonk stuff I'm excited about. Um, with regards to how the space is developing, um, I think the different kinds of polynomial commitment schemes that have been cropping up recently, particularly things like Dark, um, and being able to commit to polynomials in a transparent way using groups of unknown order, using potentially class groups. I, it's, it's, um, it's absolutely fascinating and I'm incredibly excited to see how that develops. Yeah, for, for me personally, I, I feel we've gotten to a point now where we have an efficient enough system and simple enough system uh, with, with Plonk and I'm excited about seeing it like seeing it used in, in applications and how that's going to develop in the next few years. What about these, like, so there's things, like, there's Slonk that Justin Drake recently released, which is a variation. Like, are you also encouraging or excited about, like, people taking Plonk in a different direction, or? Well, I'll, I'll give, uh, so it's really, it's really great to see all the, a lot of, a lot of follow-up work. It's, it's really nice to, to see that. Uh, specifically, uh, what I think has potential is this joint work with Justin called Splonk. Oh, it's called Sh really? Oh. <laughs> Where? <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe that's a working title. Your names <laughs> I think are it's so perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. So Plonk, by the way, Plonk. Can we just define? This is at the very oh. end of the episode, but Plonk. As I read, I looked it up. It means like bad wine or something like this in British English. Yeah, it's English slang for cheap, low quality wine, um, <laughs> which uh, I felt it was. I felt it was. I felt it was appropriate because uh, Plonk the cryptographic protocol and Plonk the booze—they both give me a severe headache uh, oh. consuming them. <laughs> but but it, it's used more generally as slang for various bad things. So cheap though. It's got a, it's got a, it's got a, like a, <laughs> cheap it's got, and bad. It's got light-hearted connotations, like cheap and cheerful. Uh, you know, you know, yeah. But yeah. but available to everybody, maybe. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I will I will tell a story that I have I have a habit of submitting things to ePrint before they're full, before they're ready, because then it puts pressure on me to work on them. And usually, it takes ePrint three to four days to actually publish. But so we put plot we. Submitted to ePrint with Plonk as a working title, and and this time it took them only half an hour to <laughs> not four days to. And Zach, I, yeah, Zach wrote me in the morning. I think I'm having buyer's remorse about Plonk. Oh, it's already up. Well, <laughs> yeah, this is entirely Arrow. I'm going to blame Arrow on this because yeah, he told me he was like, yeah, we'll just we'll just post it to ePrint. We'll have a week to you know fix it up and fi figure out a name. And I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. That sounds about right. And then you know the, the next funny. morning, I'm like. Why are people messaging me about about this paper that's on ePrint that's supposed to not be public? <laughs> so anyway, it was um, yeah, it kind of it kind of just took oh well. control. And now you're going in all sorts of fun other directions. Well, I guess that means we have to keep our eyes out. I want to say thank you again for ha for coming on the show and talking to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I hope we get to have you back again pretty soon to hear what what comes of all of this. And yeah, to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.